Father, you are the one who oversees the uh, seasons and the epics. From the time of planting seed to the time of harvesting seed, you oversee the day and the night, and you oversee the years. And whenever we begin a new year, it's, it's always a valuable exercise in the midst of all of the family stuff and the parties and get-togethers with friends. It's, it's always good to take some time somewhere around the beginning of that year and the ending of the previous year and just take time to, to ponder and... Uh, to give ourselves a little room to think back over the previous 12 months. A lot of us have been somewhat surprised by all that occurred in 2008. A lot of us didn't see some of these things coming, and that, that's true of almost every year of our lives. But in particular, this past year. And we are very, very mindful that there is no more secure place in all of the world to be uh, except in, in your hand. We are grateful that you are our Father. Many of us in here are fathers, and we would do anything for our children, but we can only do so much. We are limited in our resources, but uh, Lord, you are unlimited. I think about that passage in Deuteronomy 1 where you say that I carried you as a father carries his little son. And we look back over this year and there have been times when you have picked us up as a father will pick up his little boy and you just carried us because we didn't have what we needed. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. We received mercy and grace every day of 2008. But we cannot live off of that mercy and grace. We need a fresh supply every day. And we received it today, and even as we get up in the morning, there will be new mercies for us. I would pray for each of us, Lord, that you would help us this year in particular, to, to combat worry and anxiety. Uh, these, these, these are uh, turbulent times. And quite frankly, they're, they're frightening times. And, and we, we, can, <clears throat> we, we, can, we can read spreadsheets and we can read trends and we can see where things are going. And we know when someone's trying to spin us and you want us to deal with reality and quite frankly, Lord, as we look out ahead to the future economically, uh, we're not all that optimistic. And that's why we need to look at our lives through the lens of Scripture and remind ourselves of who you are and what you have promised to do for us. I pray that this year that you would help us to live each day Not that we don't plan, not that we don't think, not that we're not aware, but Lord, when we, when we take on the weight of what might happen in the future, 
It, it crushes us. We, we just simply cannot handle it. So would you help us this year to live in the day that you have given to us and to simply trust you for grace to get us through that day? And then that will enable us to sleep at night and not only to sleep, but to rest. A lot of guys in here are in difficult positions. Some guys are fighting severe health issues. They're very mindful of how much they need you and, and your healing touch in their body to sustain them. Some guys in here that are going through chemotherapy treatments and it's just about killing them in order so that they might live. And we pray that you will sustain them and encourage their hearts. Some guys, it's their wives that are going through this. And so that puts a burden on a husband. And we pray that you will sustain those that are dealing with physical illnesses and diseases. We have guys in here that are out of work and they still have got mortgage payments and they are still putting kids through school. And we pray that you will sustain them and help them, Lord, to fight off panic. You know where they are. You know what they need. You know what their bills are. And you've promised to meet all of our needs according to your riches and glory. So show them your greatness, Lord. And until that provision comes, help them to trust and help them to fight off that worry. We, we cannot live a moment without you. And when things are going well and everything around us is going well, it's so easy to forget that. But how grateful we are that you are the God who is in absolute control of our lives. Help us to live off this truth and to apply it. Open our eyes tonight, Lord, that we might behold wonderful things from thy law. We ask your spirit to teach us. You know where every guy is. You know where each guy is. You know what the issues are, what the pressures are, what the fears are. Take your word and apply it to us and calm us and give us courage. And we would ask these things in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> That's all right. I'll just say Hyundai. It'll be okay. Thanks. Hey, if you've got a Hyundai, a green, dark green one, uh, it was just stolen. And uh, we'll get you a ride home. Uh, the inside light's on. If that's an issue for you, enough said. And if there's still some uh, room guys and you could make your way in a little bit somewhere, if there's not, that's fine. Well, some of you guys could get in the other guy's lap. I mean, we're, we're open here to all different ways of doing this, but... Uh, Anyway, just if you got a room, some room, just just be aware we got some guys trying to get in. Now, here's the deal. What are we going to do this semester? Last semester we did this study on uh, on giants, and if uh, you weren't with us, let me just just kind of summarize it for you. We looked at Joshua and Caleb, and uh, our premise was: if you have a desire to be used by God, and and I doubt if you would be here on a Wednesday night. After a long day of work and a lot of responsibilities, uh, there's a lot of stuff you could be doing tonight. 
So, so why are you here? My guess would be you're here because you have a desire in your heart to be used by God in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, you, don't, you don't want to waste your life. You want your life to count. You want to make a mark. You want to be productive. Uh, m- many of us have wasted years of our lives, and, and we're sick and tired of that, and we're done with it. We want God to use us. Now, for God to use you, it doesn't mean you have to be well-known or famous or in the spotlight or any of that stuff. Uh, it just means that you're faithful to the Lord. If you have a desire to be used by God, there's something you need to be aware of, and it's simply this. If you're going to be used by God in your life, you're going to have to fight some giants. There's always a giant to fight in the Christian life. Uh, for some, it's a, it's a giant disease. For others, it's a, it's a giant financial setback, or it's a, it's a hard marriage where you just don't get along You don't see eye to eye. You're not on the same wavelength. So everybody says punt and leave and get out, and you're not doing that. That's a huge giant. Or it can be a kid that's in drugs and wandering off and just absolutely have lost their mind. There are all kinds of giants that we face. Um, Nobody likes to face a giant. But when you look at the scriptures, the guys who have been used by God have consistently been called to fight the giants. We, we base this study in the fall, and the reason I'm taking some time to, um, to go over what we did in the fall is, is that I'm going to keep going with it in the winter. Because we didn't cover it all, just to let you know where I'm going. I, I really thought when we ended at Thanksgiving, well, that's it for the giant study. But as I thought about it over the, over the break... Um, gosh, there's a lot of stuff we, can, we didn't get to. And really what we did, and I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me back up. We, we started with Numbers 13, where they came out of Egypt, children of Israel, they're going into the promised land. You remember the Abrahamic covenant? Genesis 12, 15 and 17, God said to Abraham, he's the father of the Jews. And God made some promises to him, and one of the promises was, I'm going to give you the land. So if you turn on Fox News or CNN, the lead story that you're going to read about is the land. What land? Israel, Gaza, Jews, Palestinians. That all goes back to Genesis and, and the covenant that God made with Abraham. This whole deal is about land. And it's going to be that way. And, and let me tell you this. They're not going to get it fixed. And if you read your Bible and if you know your Bible, you know they're not going to get it fixed until the Lord returns and he fixes it. So this is an ongoing saga. They come out of Egypt, they're going into the promised land. So the Lord says in Numbers 13, pick 12 guys, one from each tribe. There's 12 tribes. And he says, I want you to pick a leader from each of the tribes. So they pick 12 guys, they send them in, they do a reconnaissance mission for 40 days. They come back, and you know the story. They give their report, and it's an unbelievable land. It's productive, it's fruitful. God says, I'm going to give you houses you didn't build. I'm going to give you orchards you didn't plant. I'm I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. But there's a problem because that land is inhabited. And there, the land is inhabited by these different tribes called, we call the ites. So you got the Canaanites, you got the Perizzites, you got the Amorites, you got all these ites in the land. They are powerful people. Uh, they are technologically advanced. The ites had iron chariots and nobody else on the face of the world, on the face of the earth, had iron chariots except the ites. And so God says, I want you guys to go in I want you to take the land. They do the recon mission, they come back, and 10 of the 12 guys say, yeah, it's a great land. 
But there were giants in the land, and there were giants in the land. The Anakim, or the Anakim, were in the land. Uh, literally, uh, that means they were long-necked. Now, some of you guys know about long-necked Bud Lights, but these guys were long-necked because they just were, they were huge. They were gigantic. Yeah, it's a great land, but the ites are living there, and there's giants. And so these ten guys, out of their panic, said, we're not able to take them. Joshua and Caleb. Anybody in here, anybody in here named Joshua? Can I see your hand? I'm just curious. We don't have any Joshuas in here. Oh, we got, yeah. Thanks for raising your hand. Appreciate it. Any, any Caleb's in here? We got two, I see two Caleb's. Anybody in here have a son or a grandson named Joshua or Caleb? Great. Now, let me ask you something. Can anybody in here give me the names of the 10 guys who said we're not able? If you can, we have a Mercedes out there we want to give to you. It's a very small Mercedes. It's a matchbox, but still a Mercedes. Nobody knows the 10 guys. You can't name the 10 guys, but everybody knows Joshua and Caleb. Why do we all know Joshua and Caleb? Because Joshua and Caleb were used by God. Why were they used by God? They were willing to fight the giants. The other guy said, we're not able. Yeah, but God is able. He just took us through the Red Sea. He just did 10 plagues on Egypt and Pharaoh. If he did that, why can't he fight the giants for us? Now, here's why we're going ahead with this study. And what dawned on me over Christmas is that we got right up to Jericho, and then we ended. Now, if you know anything about Joshua and Caleb's lives, uh, Jericho was the first battle they were going to face, they were going to fight, as they crossed the Jordan and went into the land. So what did we do all those weeks before we got to the first battle? Well, really, we were looking at their history and their background and the process that God used in order to build muscle and put iron into their hearts so that they were willing to fight the giant. In a sense, what we did in the fall was we looked at the process that God used in getting them uh, battle ready. Boot camp, if you will. All right, so now we left them at Jericho. Now we're going to pick it up at Jericho. Because now they're going to fight a series of battles by which they've been prepared by God to do. And, and by the way, how is it that you get prepared for battle, and how is it that you get prepared? And, and, and the battle wasn't going to be just done in a week or two. How do you get involved for combat? How do you get prepared? How do you get ready? Uh, James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, when I encounter trials, that's certainly my immediate response. And I know it's yours. Now, think about that for a minute. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's not your response, and that's not my response. You get a phone call, and suddenly you're in a trial. David was telling me he got a call over the break. He's out of a job. That's a trial. And David immediately said, praise God for this trial that's going to build me and mature me into a godly man. That's not what you said, is it? It's not what I would have said. That's not, our, that's not our initial response to trials. If, if that's your initial response to trials, um, 
It's one of two reasons. If, if you have a trial and you immediately look at the positive, I would say there are two issues. Number one, you're either an idiot. Can I say that? Have you noticed that some guys are just real super spiritual? You've noticed it. You won't admit it. I, I, here's what I'm trying to say. Um, most guys, when they encounter trials, they're, they're, not real, they're not real positive about it. Um, if you are, if you're learning to become, and look, let's say this, your initial response is never going to be, oh, yes, God's in this. But, but there's a point where you, you get into a trial, you get a phone call, whatever, and you got to go through a process, and you got to get a hold of yourself, and you got to get your feet under, and you got to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, I know the panic's coming and all that and all that, but you know what? God's in this. God's in this. And it's about time I started applying my faith. Is this making sense? I had a guy ask me last week. I, I uh, hadn't seen him in about 10 years. And, and uh, we were just talking, and, and, and I was getting ready. I was speaking in Seattle, and he said, hey, what can I pray for you this morning before you get up and speak? He said, what's going on in your life? How can I pray for you? I said, this may sound a little weird, but you know how you could pray for me? Would you, you could pray for me that uh, I'll do a better job of, of just trusting God. You know, I'm going to be 60 years old on my next birthday. And you know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see some progress. I'd like to see some improvement in my life in actually trusting God. When the phone call comes and I'm in a trial, instead of panicking, instead of getting, you know, stressed out and all this, and oh my gosh, and, you know, and sometimes it comes in waves. But I want to do a better job of just getting my feet on the ground and saying, you know, Lord, I've seen you do so much for me. I know this trial comes from you, ultimately. Would you help me to trust you? And Lord, even in the midst of this lousy news, Lord, I thank you that you're in this. Lord, would you help me to count this as joy? Not, not to like it, but to know that you're at work in my life. And, the, and, and Lord, the, everything I've ever been in, you've always made a way out. There's always a remedy there's always an escape. I've seen you do that 500 times in my life. So would you help me now to not freak out, but to be thankful that you're in charge of my life? Are you guys getting this? This is what I'm trying to do this year. I think it's, I think it's a good goal. See, that goes back to what Les was saying we don't want to just be hearers of the word. You know, there are more Bible studies in Dallas, Texas, than anywhere else on the, on the planet. Any day of the week, I don't care what your schedule is. Any day of the week, breakfast, lunch, evening, you want a Bible study? You can find a Bible study probably within 10 miles of your house because this is Dallas. This is the Bible study capital of the world. Is it not? How many of you guys are in another Bible study besides this Bible study? Let me see your hands. It's a lot of guys. Great. Good. See? And how many of you guys are 
in a church that you are there on Sundays. Yeah. So you're in church on Sundays. You're in a couple of Bible studies. You know what the danger is in your life and my life? Is that we'll be hearers of the word, but not, but not doers. Well, how do you be a doer of the word? You trust him. You trust him. Now, tonight we're going to deal with another giant. And, and, and this one is kind of out of left field. We've been talking about all these different giants. The giant that we're going to deal with tonight is what I call the giant of small infection. That's the giant. Uh, my son John is a firefighter in Arlington. And he called me a couple days after Christmas and he said, uh, he said, Dad, I, I don't want to worry you. I, I'm, I'm really okay, but I'm calling you from the emergency room to Harleyan Hospital. But, uh, and he said, everything's fine, but they got me on some meds, and they don't want me to drive. Would you be able to come down and pick me up? And I said, yeah, what, what's going on? Well, here's what was going on. A couple days before Christmas, he's opening up a package that somebody sent to him. And uh, it must have been a DVD because he couldn't get it open. You know how they seal those suckers. <laughs> anyway, he's opening up. He can't get it open. So he reaches, you know, gets a knife out of the kitchen, but you get some kind of kitchen knife. And he's, you know, trying to open this sucker and it slips and it just cuts his finger. No big deal. You know, he, you know, gets a bandaid, puts it on there. Well, he, he a couple days later, he goes in to do his 24 hour shift. And that night about 1 a.m., they go do an apartment fire or an old house fire. I can't remember what it was. It was an old house. Because he's having, to, he's having to bust through the attic. There's fire in the attic. So he's busting up through the attic. And it turns out this was a real old house. And there's two layers of ceiling to get into the attic. So he's just pounding like crazy. And so, you know, they put out the fire. And they go back to the station and uh, get some sleep. He gets up for breakfast. And he notices uh, the cut was on his middle finger. He notices that there's red going all the way up his middle finger. And he thought, oh, gosh, you know, well, I'll have to keep my eye on that. Now, he's going to work another 24-hour shift because he had traded with a buddy. So he's working two in a row. Um, that night, he looks at it, and it's getting worse. But he doesn't want to leave because he's covering for his buddy. And anyway, <laughs> so the next morning, he wakes up, and it's all the way up to his knuckle. So he goes by the Arlington Hospital, and they look at it and open it up and all this stuff and put him on some meds, and he calls me, and that's how I get into the story. So I went down and drove him home, and we were having a family deal that night, and he, he said, you know, Dad, I think I'll just take a nap here at the house. And I said, yeah, do that. About 6 o'clock, he wakes up, and that infection is all the way past his knuckle in, into his hand. And whatever they did at the first hospital wasn't working. So we made some calls, he did, and found out that Baylor has a 24-hour hand specialist. So I ran him down to Baylor. Uh, long story short, um, since Christmas, John has had two surgeries on his hand trying to save his finger. Um, they, they found out that he had, um, um, somehow that, that tendon got severed in the middle finger. Now, it doesn't appear that it got severed when he had the little cut, but it appears that pounding, trying to open up the attic, probably, you know, exacerbated the situation. Well, when they went in there the second time, 
uh, over 90% of the tendon was gone. Uh, pretty serious stuff. Now, what's interesting about this, and, and, and he's got this big thing in his hand, and he's not going to be able to go back on shift for 90 days. What's interesting about all of this is that it started with just a very, very small cut, and that became a small infection. John was telling me about a firefighter in another city that had an infection get into a cut, and 48 hours later, he was dead. And when they did the autopsy on him, his spinal fluid was absolutely black. You don't miss with infections. Just as there are physical infections, so there are infections of the heart and of the soul. And in Joshua, we have an event that took place at Jericho that nobody knew about. But the ramifications of this event came back and had um, staggering ramifications. Over the break, I was reading a book by, uh, what's this guy's name? Malcolm Gladwell called uh, The Outliers. And uh, he tells a story in here of Robert Oppenheimer. Now, I'd heard of Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer was the guy, the brilliant uh, physicist who oversaw the Manhattan Project. Oppenheimer was the father of the atomic bomb. And he has a little bit of background on, on Oppenheimer. And there was, you know, a very famous man. But Oppenheimer had a secret that he didn't want anybody to know about. Uh, he, he was a genius growing up. Uh, when he was nine years old, he would tell his teachers, um, you can ask me a question in Latin and I will answer you in Greek. You can relate to this guy, can't you? Yeah. He was just brilliant. And so, you know, he, he graduates early and goes to Harvard and the whole thing and then wins a fellowship to go to uh, Oxford or Cambridge or somewhere in England. And so he's, you know, he's like 17, 18 years old and he's doing all this PhD work. Well, when he's uh, in England studying, he has a professor that he doesn't like because this particular professor is, um, is really pushing him. He knows the guy's a genius, but he's pushing him in a particular area of physics that, that Oppenheimer is not real interested in. So Oppenheimer is not used to being pushed. He's used to getting everything immediately. He's used to absorbing things and assimilating. And he's having to actually work and think. And this guy's pushing him and pushing him. And Oppenheimer gets mad and he gets resentful and he gets bitter. And so Oppenheimer decides that what he's going to do is he's going to take some chemicals and he's going to formulate some poison and put it in the guy's coffee and he's going to murder him. And so he did. Only the guy figured it out before he drank the drink. And reported it to the school officials. And they called Oppenheimer in. And the facts were exceedingly clear. You tried to poison this professor. But the thing about Oppenheimer was this. He was not only brilliant, he was very winsome. And he had a personality that he could smooth talk anybody. And here he is, 19 years old. He's just attempted to murder a professor, and they call him in, and he talked them in to allowing him to see a psychiatrist once a week and putting him on probation. And that's what they did. And so it never came out 
charges were never pressed. Now, what's interesting is years and years later, they're trying to put together the Manhattan Project to find someone to oversee the most sensitive intelligence project ever done in that century, which was to devise the atom bomb. And who do they pick? Oppenheimer. And in the background check, it came up that he had a secret. But he was so winsome with the general who was head of the project that he won the guy over and the guy recommended him and he was approved. Oh, the guy's a genius, this guy's incredible, he's got this degree, this degree, just a little problem, he tried to kill his professor, but that's not a big issue. <laughs> it's a big issue to God. You know, all of us have things we've done that we're ashamed of. We all have things that we would like to keep in the dark. But God is not a God of darkness. God is a God of light. Now, I want to show you this situation that happened as they go into their very first battle in Jericho. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Joshua chapter 6. And we're going to kind of just highlight the events that took place here. Jericho was, was, was a formidable city. It was shut tight. They had these massive walls. It, uh, Jericho is the oldest city in the world. And Jericho sits in a valley at 750 feet below sea level. And Jericho is watered by springs. You can visit Jericho today when you go to Israel if, well, sometimes you can visit and sometimes you can't. It depends on what's going on with terrorists. But Sometimes they'll let you into Jericho, and they've, they've done amazing excavations. But this, is, this was the first city, after all these years of preparation, after 40 years of wandering, they cross the Jordan, and they're going in, and they're going to take this massive city of Jericho. Uh, let's pick up in 616. Just, and you remember the story, you know, they, they walk around the city and the whole thing, and Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. You remember that deal. So Joshua 616 says, at the seventh time... When the priest blew the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. This city shall be under the ban, and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she had the messengers whom we sent. So you remember the story? We talked about these two spies. Before they ever go into Jericho, they send these two spies in, and they're checking. They didn't send 12, they sent two spies. It's always good to learn from the past. Would you not agree? Yeah. Hegel said that history teaches us that men never learn from history. Learn from history. I think it's ironic, and I think it's interesting, that the first recon mission had 12 guys, and only two of them are faithful. So this time, they send two guys in. And they send the two guys in, and you know the story. And uh, Rahab was a prostitute. She had a house on the, on the wall, so a lot of men would come and go. It was a good cover. Uh, you know the story how she... Uh, lied for them, and, you know, I'm not going to get into that, whether she should have or shouldn't, but she did. And she wasn't a woman who had been through Bible study fellowship for five years. All she knew was that there was this God that opened the Red Sea for these guys, and she wanted to know him. So they make a covenant with her, and she knows what's going to happen to the city, and the whole nation's just shaking in their boots. And they say, listen, whoever's in your house, you and your family, We'll make a covenant with you. You tie this red cord in the window, and when this all happens, you'll be rescued. So this is what this is referring to. 
Joshua says, the city shall be under the ban. All that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live. Because she hid the messengers whom we sent. 18. Now watch this. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Uh, to the victors go the spoils. Part of the deal of warfare, uh, you, you, you go into battle, you win, you get the stuff. You get the gold, you get the silver, you get the Rolexes. If a guy leased a Lexus, you get the Lexus. That's just how it works. But God says in this first battle, uh-uh. It all goes into my treasury. You don't take the gold, you don't take the silver, you don't touch this stuff, it's mine. Everybody understood it. Everybody got it. It was crystal clear. Let's go to chapter 7. They've uh, won the battle at Jericho. Now they're moving on to the next battle. God's given them a tremendous triumph. Uh, the next city is Ai. This is really interesting. Because once again, they do a recon mission, and the guys come back. You can read this in the opening verses of... Uh, of chapter 7, and the guys come back and say, look, AI is not that big of a city, it's not that strong, it's nothing like Jericho, we don't need to send all the guys up there, let's send two or 3,000 guys and that'll handle it. So that's what they do. Um, verse 3, they returned to Joshua, said to him, do not all, let all the people go up, only about two or 3,000 need to go up to AI, do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, now watch this, but they fled from the men of AI. They weren't expecting this. You've heard of the thrill of victory. Well, this is the agony of defeat. Uh, they weren't expecting this at all because God said, I'm going to go ahead of you. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to make a way. They knew that as they went into battle, they weren't going to lose. They knew it. And what happens in the second battle? Small city, no big deal. Let's just send a few guys up there. They it's remarkable to me how it states it in the scriptures. They fled from the men of Ai. They were in full retreat. Now, this is not what you want to get out on the Internet to the other cities that they're going to have to tackle. Yeah, they did all right in Jericho, but these suckers dropped their, their, their swords and shields and ran. And then you get a little bit more information. Verse 5, the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men. 36 guys were killed. Verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan, only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell up beyond the Jordan. Now, they don't get this. What happened? I mean, you, 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 you've, you've never failed to fulfill a promise. I mean, he's, he is flummoxed. He does not get this. Eight, oh Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. They'll surround us, cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, I understand, get a cup of coffee. Go see a counselor, get in a small group. Is that what God said? That's not what God said. The Lord said to Joshua, get up, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? 
You know, sometimes fathers are tough, aren't they? Sure they are. Now, is a father always supposed to be tough? No. Some of you guys had dads that were just tough as nails all the time. That's not fathering. There's a time to be tough. There's a time to be tender. This was a time to be tough. And who is this father, by the way? Who is our father? He's the perfect father. We've all made mistakes with our kids. Sometimes with our kids, we've been tough when we needed to be tender. Every guy in this room has done that. Sometimes we've been tender when we should have been tough and drawn a line. Our Father in heaven never makes those mistakes. Never. Never. Now watch what he says. He says, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before the enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people, and, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said. Hey, guys, let me tell you something. God does not like us to disobey him. He doesn't like it. When I was in Seattle last weekend, after the main session, we did a question and answer thing for about 30 minutes and really had a good time. And one guy over here asked me a question. He said, you know, Steve, I want to grow in my faith and all this, and God's been real good to me, but I, uh, you know, you know I, I feel like I need to learn to love the Lord more. How is it, what can I do to love him more? What can I do to grow in, in my love for, for the Lord? I said, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There's nothing God loves more than obedience. And you know what, guys? Sometimes we excuse and excuse and excuse and excuse and excuse ourselves. We're not always to be children. We're, some of you guys are new believers. You've just recently come to faith in Christ. That's great. So you're, you're just kind of starting off. I mean, that's wonderful. You know, spiritual birth is recent for you. But can I tell you something? The goal of spiritual maturth, maturth, that's in the Hebrew. The, it kind of sounds Hebrew, doesn't it? The, the goal of spiritual birth is to become mature. One of the things God wants to do with us is to get us out of pampers. The Lord wants us to grow up. It's kind of cute when our kids are little toddlers and they're running around and doing all their little stuff and, you know. But we're supposed to grow. And if your wife takes your child in for a physical and they weigh them and measure them and if they're not on schedule, something's wrong. I, I knew a couple... And they took their son in and 
he wasn't growing and he wasn't growing and he had dwarfism. And it brought a whole host of issues and medical issues for this little kid. God wants me to grow. One of the ways he wants me to grow is he wants me to grow in, catch this, obedience. Isn't that what you, what you want your kids to do? Sure it is. You want your kids to obey you. Now, are they going to obey you perfectly? No, and you know that. So there's room for grace and there's room for mercy and there's forgiveness. But you're looking at their hearts because you want to see and it's interesting with kids, you're looking at their heart. Sometimes they say they're sorry, and you know they're not sorry. Right? Because it's, sorry is not on their face. Sorry is not in their attitude. Sorry is not in their heart. God wants to see our hearts, and he wants to, he doesn't expect us to be perfect. He knows we're dust. But he wants to see an attitude and a spirit of obedience. If you love me, You'll keep my commandments. And when you don't, you'll feel bad about it. Now watch what happens with this guy in Joshua 7. <clears throat> so God says, you got a problem. This is why I didn't give you success in battle. You, you have violated what I told you to do. Verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel nearby tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zerahites. There were different clans in the different tribes. And then they're going to start a process. Verse 18, he brought his household near man by man. And Achan, here's the problem, a guy by the name of Achan, from the tribe of Judah was taken. Verse 19, Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to God, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw the, among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar. Um, a mantle is a robe. It's a cloak. When... when when I saw this beautiful robe, oh, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers, they ran to the tent. Behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Let's just stop right there. Um, let, let, let me make three observations about this. First one is this. What happens in Jericho will not stay in Jericho. These commercials with Vegas. You know, for a while, Vegas was, I read about this. They were doing a marketing campaign for a number of years trying to appeal to families to come to Vegas. That was their whole approach. But then, you know, it was so-so. It was okay. 
So then they come up with this thing. Hey, hey, hey. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You know the thing I've noticed about Vegas? They're always contrary to the Bible. Have you picked up on this? Uh, you know what the scripture says? In fact, it's in uh, Numbers, uh, uh, where is it? Uh, uh, 32, verse 23. Uh, you know what the Bible says? You can be sure that your sin will find you out. What happens in Vegas will stay in Vegas. No, it won't. You can be sure your sin will find you out. I don't care who you are. I don't care how smooth. I don't care how glib you are. So this Bernie Madoff guy. We've all been hearing about this guy. We've all been reading about this guy. I, I mean, he's, he's causing great banks to collapse. He's got nations quaking in their boots. I, I read something about how smoothly he operated. Um, this guy was good. Uh, apparently, you could only get in through a recommendation, and you had to have a referral, and then, and at least in the early days, you'd meet with him and you know, maybe have lunch with your friend who was involved with him. And he'd tell you what was going on. He was real low key. And the guy might say, well, I'd like to put in 100000 And Madoff would say, well, you know, why don't you just start with 10000 and just see how you feel. Just see how it goes. Yeah, that's too much. You don't want to do 100000 Just do 10 and see if you're comfortable. Is that smooth or what? When was the last time you're talking to some guy about investment and, you know, he wants you to invest. And you say, well, yeah, I'll put in this much. He goes, oh, no, that's too much. Nobody says that. That's how devious this guy was. Oh, yeah, just start with 10. Let's see how it goes. So he's just, he's just, he's just conning these guys right and left. Uh, he's been doing this for, what, 20-some years? Let me ask you something. How much peace do you think that guy's had in his life? I don't think much. you got to wonder, is this the day, is this the day I'm going to get caught? And how many times has this guy been investigated and he got through it? Amazing. But he knew, he knew, you can be sure your sin will find you out. Here's number two. Number two is this, and we've really already touched on it. What God values is obedience. You know, in the Christian world, there are a lot of different things that people do that they think are spiritual. Um... In, in different parts of the body of Christ, there are certain actions and certain behaviors that are very spiritual. In, in some sections of Christianity, uh, or maybe you've had this happen to you, you've talked with someone and uh, they ask if you've had this experience. Well, no, I haven't had this experience. Well, do you want all that God has for you? You ever had somebody say that to you? Do you want everything that God has for you? Well, yeah. Well, then you need to have this experience. Have you ever spoken in tongues? I've never spoken in tongues. Well, you need to speak in tongues. Well, why do I need to speak in tongues? Well, because it's, God wants everybody to speak in tongues. But see, that's interesting to me because I heard that all my life. But you can read right there in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, all do not speak in tongues, do they? No, they don't. Why? Because God distributes the gifts as he wills. As he wills. But sometimes, you know, you'll have someone, you know, oh, you need to have this experience. And, and you can go to classes and they'll show you how to speak in tongues. Just like they had the classes in Acts chapter 2. 
You remember in Acts 2, they went to the uh, six-week series and told them how to speak in tongues? Do you remember that? They had to take a test afterwards? Hey, let me tell you something. If God is going to give a gift, you don't have to take a class. He just gives the gift. You see? He just gives it. The reason some people say that, they think uh, in charismatic circles, and I was raised in that. And so those who have spoken in tongues are more spiritual than those who haven't spoken in tongues. Those who have fallen over and not broken a hip are more spiritual than the guys who haven't. You've seen these guys on TV, right? They're always, you know. And you know something I must say about this, slain in the spirit thing? You know what interests me? Every time in the scripture I see someone who has an encounter with the living God, they don't foul backwards. They fall on their face before the living God. And there's nobody around to catch them, is there? You bury your face in the ground when you're in the presence of a holy God. But see, all these different experiences. Oh, you had this experience. Have you had this experience? Have you had this? Let me tell you something. Nothing trumps obedience. The most spiritual thing you can ever do, the most spiritual thing I can ever do is to obey the word of God. To obey it. To do what it says. And you know what, guys? I think we've gotten a little lax on this because we're so concerned about emphasizing grace. And we got, hey, listen, we emphasize grace because we're sinners. We can't live without grace. We can't live without mercy. And the grace and the mercy and the loving kindness of God is there. But that does not negate the fact that God wants me to learn to be obedient. And as I walk with him and the more information I get from his word, as if, if I am disobedient, if I refuse to yield an area of my life to him, Hebrews 12 tells me he will discipline me just as a father does to a son whom he loves who is disobedient. God is serious about obedience. He wants us to learn to obey him. And when we don't, because he's a loving and good and gracious and wise father, he'll discipline us. That's what he'll do. He'll do it to you. He'll do it to me. He's done it to me. I remember reading one of the, the great old Puritans. I can't, it might have been John Flavel. And Flavel was talking about discipline. And, and Flavel said, this guy lived 300 years ago. Flavel said, usually, as he looked back over his life, about every two years he would encounter a discipline from God. Because he'd gotten off track and didn't realize it. Or sometimes did realize it and wouldn't deal with it. So God would discipline him. You say, well, how does God do that? Well, you'll find out. He has different ways. You say, well, how do I know, by, how do I know I'm being disciplined by God? You will know because the Spirit of God will let you know this is about this. It's very clear. You can't miss it. So is all suffering discipline? No, it isn't. Because you're suffering doesn't mean you're being disciplined. But if you're being disciplined, the Spirit of God will let you know this is what the issue is in your life. He'll let you know. So then what's the answer? The answer is deal with it. Handle it. Admit it. Come clean. Quit hiding it. Quit screwing around. Right? Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, used to say that repentance, you've heard that word repentance. What is repentance? Repentance 
is making a U-turn. Every time you make a U-turn, you've repented. Oh, gosh. I get to turn around and go back. Sometimes in your spiritual walk, you need to turn around and go back. Repentance is by an act of your will, you make a choice and you, you're going the wrong way and you go the right way. We're following him in paths of righteousness, Psalm 23 says. So you make that U-turn. But there, there's an authentic repentance and there's a synthetic repentance. Isn't there? And God knows the difference. We see guys caught, high-profile guys, famous guys, politicians, preachers, they're caught in some secret sin. My gosh, isn't the, a few years ago, the biggest church in America? We've got the president of the National Association of Evangelicals having gay sex in a hotel room in Denver. Let me tell you something. God's going to handle that stuff. And, and let me say this. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because teachers incur a stricter judgment. You say, well, God wouldn't do that. Are you kidding me? Judgment begins with the household of God. If you're in the family, he's going to discipline you. And what, so what is it that he wants? He, he wants us to follow him with our whole hearts. Doesn't he? Hey, guys, tough times economically. We've been through Matthew 6 several times in the fall, going over all this stuff about anxiety and worry. But what does it say in Matthew 6? Seek ye what? First. Not fourth, not twelfth, not nineteenth. Seek ye first the kingdom. That means you don't screw around with sin. And it means you come clean when he convicts you. Thomas Watson used to say that repentance is the vomiting of the soul. You ever had the dry heaves? What a wonderful experience that is. <laughs> That's genuine repentance. You hate, you hate, you detest, you despise what you've done. That's the real thing. You loathe it, and you turn from it. Now, I'll tell you, a broken and contrite spirit, God will not despise. He embraces a guy like that. Well, how long is God going to discipline me? until you repent and deal with the sin from your heart. Now, does that mean things will immediately get better? Probably not. Because he's going to train you in righteousness. See, he's a father. He's serious about this stuff. I'm running out of time. Let me go to number three. We talked about the small infection. What was the small infection? The small infection... And, and I, I haven't given you the point yet, but I will in a minute. In verse 20, Joshua says, hey, t- tell me what you did. Achan answered. Joshua said, truly I've sinned. Verse 21. Now watch this. Watch this. When I saw. There it is. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle, a beautiful robe, the 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold, 50 shekels of weight. How did all this start? Watch this. When I Saw. When I saw, yeah, when I saw. See, this is, this is coveting. You know there are ten commandments. We can't read them in schools, but we can still read them here. And they're in Exodus 20. You know what the last commandment says? Flip over there real quick. You got them listed in Exodus 20. And the last commandment says this. 
Verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Why would you covet your neighbor's house? Because you saw your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Why would you covet your neighbor's wife? Because you saw. Or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor's. Uh, what, what, what is coveting? Coveting is, is an epidemic desire in your heart that starts by seeing that makes you violate every other principle in your life in order to obtain it. When he saw, what was it? It was a small cut. Can I tell you something kind of ironic in light of everything John's been through in the last few weeks? Uh, two days ago, I was opening up a bottle of vitamins, and I couldn't open it up. It was shrink-wrapped and had all this stuff on it. So I'm in the kitchen, so what do I do? Open up, take out a butcher knife. Ah! And you see that right there? You see that? That's a small cut. Normally I would just say, ah, no big deal. But in light of what had happened to John, I immediately ran into the bathroom, got a bottle of hydrogen peroxide, and I put about eight quarts Then I took Neosporin. <laughs> Why did I do that? I saw what happened to John. You know, coveting is so. Coveting usually starts small. Coveting is the small infection. And I, and I what? I what? I, I saw. Here's actually number three. What conquers coveting is contentment. Paul said in uh, Philippians 4, he said, I have learned to be content. I've learned. Contentment doesn't come naturally. You, you, you know why we covet? Why would you covet a guy's house in Exodus 20? Don't covet his house. Why would you covet his house? Coveting is always the result of comparison. Always. So you covet the guy's house. Why? Because you compare his house with your house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Why would you covet your neighbor's wife? Because you compare his wife with your wife. Well, she's in better shape than my wife is. Or she, I like talking with her at a party. She's, she's fun to talk with at a party. It's, 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 it's always very innocuous. It's very small. It's very, you know... It's, but it start, it's a small, guys, it's a small infection, and if it's not checked. You've got to watch comparison. You've got to watch it. Comparison always leads to something worse. This is why, this is why, and not a lot of guys are doing this right now, but it, Last year, two years ago, three years ago. This is why it's always dangerous after church on Sunday. You're driving home and there's a new subdivision and there's a model house that's open. And your wife says, oh, honey, let's just go in and look. That's dangerous. You know why that's dangerous? Because you're going to walk into a model house and you're going you're gonna, to, I remember doing that with her. We walked into this model house and we walked into this kitchen. Oh, look at this kitchen. Oh, my gosh, look at this kitchen. This kitchen, had an, it's got an island. 
Well, we, we don't have an island in our kitchen. Gilligan had an island. We, we don't have an island. Isn't that how our stuff? And then all of a sudden, well, gosh, you know, and, oh, if you just put this much in, you can have it. And what do people do? They buy more, and they, and they can't handle it. In every area of life, I have a friend, Gary Rosberg. Whenever I talk to Gary on the phone, we're hanging up. He says, hey, Steve, guard your heart. He sends me a note. Hey, Steve, guard your heart. If Gary has a, a theme in his life, it's guard your heart. It comes out of Proverbs. You know what Proverbs says? Guard your heart, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. When you guard your heart, you know what you're guarding for? You're guarding for the small, watch this, the small infections. I'm at a party over Christmas. At quite a few parties, or a lot of people, you know, and we're sending, you know, different, hey, how are you? People come and go, this gal sits down. I'm talking with a guy I know. This gal sits down, we start talking, all of a sudden, and, and you know, it's very interesting because all of a sudden, I, I, I'm looking, this gal just sat down. I'm talking to this guy, and she jumps in the conversation. And all of a sudden, I'm looking, and I'm thinking, you know, this gal's very attractive. And she's very outgoing, and she's got a wonderful personality. And, and, and you know what I did? I got up and left. I said, hey, excuse me. I need to go show my hear my show. <laughs> I didn't have to do anything. But you know what I did? After a few, I mean, we're just talking all of a sudden, and all of a sudden I realized, you know what? This gal's attractive. And she's very, and she's asking me a lot of questions. You know what? I need to get up and get out of here. You say, oh, that's extreme, Steve. Yeah, it's extreme. You're dang right it's extreme. But do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, if your eye offends you, put on sunglasses. <laughs> Jesus said, if your hand offends you, put it in a cast. Is that what he said? No. He said, cut it off. And is it not true? We've all heard the stories. It happened a few years ago up in the Rockies. Some guy is hiking by himself. He trips. He falls. He gets wedged in. And he's there several days. He's there almost a week. And what happens? Infection. Gangrene. What does the guy do? Takes a Swiss Army knife, and he cuts off his own arm in order to save his life. Guard your heart. Look for the small infection. So let me ask you something right now as we close. What is it that you're seeing that is attracting? What is it? <clears throat> Deal with it. And save your life. We bow before you, Father. Thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the power of your truth. We thank you for your mercy and your long-suffering and your grace. And we also thank you that you are the great Father who, when we get off the track, you love us enough to discipline us. Not to throw us out of your family, but to discipline us. We know what happened to Achan and how he was stoned, but as we read that story, we, we don't see that repentance. We see an acknowledgement of fact, but we don't see the brokenness. Lord, when we come to you, you never turn us away but you want obedience from the heart. We desire to be your men. Help us to hate what you hate and help us to love what you love.
We're in process. We're growing. Your spirit is in our lives and teaching us and assisting us. Encourage us with this tonight, Lord. Encourage. This is the greatest truth in the world, that you discipline those whom you love. It's a sign we're in your family. It's a sign we're going to heaven. And it's a sign you're not going to let us get away with things that will destroy our lives. We thank you that you're a great father and a great God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.